Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Happy Easter. He is risen. And the people said, He is risen indeed. It is so good to have you with us wherever you're joining us from. And I trust that even though in these extraordinary times, Easter does not at all feel like it normally does, that you are experiencing the unity of gathering together with countless believers around the world, even in our own individual places, to remember and reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the passage that was read for us just a couple of minutes ago was from the book of Revelation. And I should probably let you know the reason why I've chosen a passage from the apocalypse. Because it's not because I believe that we are necessarily in the end times or that the COVID-19 virus is in fact the work of the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. I've chosen this passage because it presents us with a particular image of Jesus in his victorious resurrected state. Uh, in the gospel accounts, and we read one of those earlier as well, in the gospel accounts, the emphasis in the stories of the resurrection are on the eyewitnesses, on their confusion, on their joy, on their doubt, their questions, their interactions with Jesus. But the work of interpreting the, uh, in, uh, the event itself, the, the work of making sense of the implications of his resurrection is really left for the rest of the New Testament. And one of the most dramatic exposés of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament is found in the book of Revelation, otherwise known as the Apocalypse of John. And it's going to take a little bit of time to get to the image of Jesus because I want to give you just a little bit of background on what's taking place to make some sense of the imagery that we then see. 
Uh, John has chosen to write an apocalypse, which is a type of literature. It's a genre. You're familiar with genres in film or perhaps in literature or music or other ways. They are types of literature uh, or film or whatever that are marked by recurring characteristics. So romantic comedies as a movie genre always contain the same sorts of things. John has chosen the apocalyptic genre, and I'll tell you about one of those key characteristics in a moment. But the purpose of an apocalyptic genre, the reason why you would choose to write an apocalypse, is actually quite important for us to understand. Because the purpose of an apocalyptic writing was to strengthen the resolve of a group of people under pressure to help them persevere and to help them persevere by showing them that the end is actually close at hand and outlining how the end is going to come about. It all, its entire aim is to strengthen resolve. It does so on the premise that if we know the ending, it's a little bit easier to prepare. It's a little bit easier to persevere. I mean, one of the issues I think that we're experiencing with the partial lockdown around COVID-19 is the simple fact that we don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, even if it were later than we hoped, even if they said this is going to last to October, if they could give us a strong, firm, certain guaranteed date, it would be really helpful for us because at least then we could begin to work towards it, even if it was a little bit further than we had hoped. So John is seeking to strengthen the resolve of a particular group of people, some followers of Jesus who lived in the Roman province of Asia Minor uh, in modern day Turkey. And this group of believers were under increasing pressure, social, political and economic pressure because of their faith. And like so many of us, when we are under pressure, when we are feeling pressure, when we, when we feel we don't have enough space around us, we look for some kind of relief valve. And for the early followers of Jesus that John's writing to, that relief valve was actually around some compromises. Now, let's not judge them too harshly. Uh, they weren't thinking about apostatizing, chucking it all in, basically saying we've never heard of Jesus and walking away from the faith. They were just looking for a, a simple, gentle give and take that might give them a little bit of breathing room, that might just take the pressure off just a little bit. But we know, of course, the danger of the first compromise, don't we? Because the first compromise can often be fatal to the integrity of our commitment. Because that first compromise, no matter how small, no matter how innocent, no matter how innocuous, generally leads to a second compromise, and then a third, and then a fourth, and the slope gets awfully slippery, awfully quickly. And so John is writing to this group of followers of Jesus to, to help them hold the line, to help them persevere, to help them endure the pressure that they're under. And to do so, John uses a classic apocalyptic trope, one of the key characteristics that you find in apocalyptic literature. And that is he gives them a very different perspective. Quite literally, he gives them a 30,000 foot perspective on their circumstances. Most of the book of Revelation actually takes place in heaven. It's from that perspective that John wants to show them what's taking place. And from the perspective of heaven, their circumstance and situation looks incredibly different. At ground level, all they can see are these overwhelming obstacles, these endless trials that they're going to have to face. But from the perspective of heaven, first of all, they can see that the end is not actually so far away at all. 
What they see on the earth is, is that they, there's no end in sight. From the perspective of heaven, there is an end and it's actually just over the hill. It's just around the corner. From the perspective of heaven, they also see that things are a lot more black and white than they appear on earth. And it's ambiguity, isn't it, that enables compromise? If we are absolutely certain, if we know with absolute certainty about what it is that we're seeking to do, compromise has a really hard time getting in. But when there's ambiguity, when there's gray, uh, when we can't quite figure out exactly what we're trying to do, that's where compromise slips in. And from the perspective of Earth, from what they can see, everything seems gray and ambiguous. From the perspective of heaven, things are very, very clear. You are either um, sealed for the lamb or you are marked for the beast. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral third option. And John intends both the end to encourage them, but also this, this, this stark distinction to keep them on the straight and narrow. And from the perspective of heaven, what becomes clear is the source of the pressure that they are under. Have you ever been standing in a line and someone has bumped into you from behind? You generally kind of turn around to, to see what's gone on. And have you ever had someone say to you, sorry, someone pushed me? What's happening for the believers that John is addressing is that they have been bumped into by the claims, the social, political, economic claims of Rome, that Rome contains the good life, that Rome contains within all of its might and power, uh, the capacity to bring them all that they desire. And the pressure seems to be coming from Rome. But from the perspective of heaven, what becomes clear is that ultimately the reason why they are under pressure is because Jesus himself, and this gets us close to this image of him in chapter five, that Jesus himself is beginning to exert his will and his presence into the world. And that is slowly but surely squeezing Rome out but in the interim, it means that the people who are following Jesus, who are seeking to follow his plans and live according to his purposes, are being caught between them. But once Rome is pushed out of the way, then there will only be the plans and purposes of Jesus and those who, John hopes, have persevered to live them out as well. This then brings us to this image that we have of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, again, I've dropped you kind of right into the middle of the action. But in chapter uh, four, uh, John provides us with uh, this dazzling presentation of the heavenly court. It's designed in part to demonstrate that Rome is a shabby two-bit operation in comparison to what is happening in heaven. He introduces us to the one who sits upon the throne and who lives forever and to the retinue that surrounds him. These amazing, spectacular creatures and angels who are continually praising him. And then chapter five opens with the call for a champion. Someone who will be worthy, someone who is able to enact the edict of God in the world. It's symbolized by a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. Uh, and they're looking for someone, anyone, who can actually bring God's plans and God's purposes to bear in the world. And in the end, only one person steps forward. It's not the emperor, 
nor is it anyone in the imperial household. In fact, there are no other claimants to be able to do this except one. And that is this image of Jesus that we encounter in verse 6. When John says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It's worth pausing just for a moment to reflect on just how provocative and uh, how uh, shocking that image is. If you're like me and you've been around the church for quite a while, you kind of get used to some of the titles for Jesus. And we've sung this, we've prayed it, we're familiar with this idea of the slain lamb and our familiarity can dull us to its impact. But of all the images that we could use to express victory, to express strength, to express power, to express the capacity to enact the will of God, I'm pretty sure that a lamb, I mean, not even a sheep or a ram with horns and stuff, a lamb, I'm pretty sure a lamb is at the bottom of that list. And on the next page, after the bottom of that list would be a lamb that had already been killed. This is not an image of victory. This is an image seemingly of being vanquished. But this is the image that John uses and which is a dominant one throughout the book of Revelation. Just prior to that in verse 5, John has been told that the Lion of Judah has triumphed and turns and sees this image, the Lamb who was slain. This image then uh, tells us something quite significant about the work of Jesus. Because what we find here is that it is the death of the Lamb, it is the death of Jesus and ultimately His resurrection, for He is alive, that qualifies Him uniquely for the task at hand. Have a look with me at the snatches of songs, the the lyrics that John kind of pulls from these heavenly hymns. Have a look in verse 9. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. The the reason why Jesus is able to enact the plans and purposes of God is because of his death and resurrection. If you have a look in verse 12, in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And as an aside, those were the very things that John's readers were trying to attain by compromise. What they wanted was a little bit more social recognition. What they wanted was a little bit more social influence and power. What they wanted was just a little more money to make life just a little bit easier. And they had been tempted to compromise with Rome to get it. When in fact, it is Jesus himself, the slain lamb, who contains and holds and is worthy of all of those things. And so the rest of the book, in a series of strange and sometimes overwhelming visions, outlines the execution of God's plans and purposes by the Lamb. As the scroll is opened, as as the plans of God are revealed by the Lamb. And this tells John's readers some very important things. 
It reminds them that the pressure that they are feeling is not the pressure just from Rome, but is in fact the carry-on from Jesus exerting the will of God on the earth. And that ultimately, if they will just endure, Rome will be pushed out and they will be with Jesus. It clarifies and demonstrates for them the very black and white nature of things in the heavenlies, encouraging them to remain on the side of the Lamb. And it also reminds them that the end is close at hand. It places them in the story, strengthens their resolve to persevere, to stick it out, to see it through. And it is this interpretation of the death and resurrection of Jesus that I want to encourage you to be thinking about this Easter. You see, it's, it's really easy, I think, for us to approach Easter from the perspective of the Gospels, uh, where the emphasis is on the eyewitnesses. The emphasis is on the response to the resurrection, as it should be in the stories. Confusion and delight and uh, disbelief and doubt and, and, and all the things that follow on from that. The Gospels ask this question in relationship to the re- resurrection, and it is Do you believe? That's the question the Gospels ask Do you believe? And if you're joining us and you're on a journey of faith, that is the question for you to answer. That's the question you need to grapple with. Do you believe? As you listen to the teachings of Jesus, as you explore what that means, that's the key question for you. But the apocalypse of John asks a different question. It's a question addressed to those who have already answered the question of whether or not they believe. The question is, are you in? Are you fully committed 100% with everything that you have and with everything that you are to the plans and purposes that Jesus is executing in the world? Because he is the only one who can do it. There is no one else in heaven or earth or under the earth who is able to bring about the plans and purposes of God in the world. There is no one else, no other organization, no other institution, no government, no power, only Jesus. Are you committed to seeing those plans, those purposes put into effect? This is the critical question for us to grapple with from the perspective of the apocalypse. Because ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus is not only about our forgiveness and eternal life. The forgiveness that has been won for us, the eternal life that has been given to us is ultimately for this purpose. Again, let me turn your attention to uh, chapter 5, verse 9. The continuation of that snatch of lyrics that John has for us. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus's death and resurrection enables him to project manage God's grand plan of restoration and renewal. And it also invites you and I to participate. This is the apocalyptic version of John 20, 21, which some of you are very familiar with. 
as the Father sent me, I am sending you. So this Easter, if you're on a journey of faith, I'd encourage you to continue to meet with us, continue to ask the questions that you have and be in touch with someone that you know would be delighted to know that you're exploring faith. But if you're joining us today and you have already decided that you believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that you do believe that He is the one who can enact the plans of God, then this question, I encourage you to take some additional time to think about, to consider your commitment. Are you in? Are you in with everything that you have? Are you committed to seeing the plans and purposes of God come to pass in the name of Jesus? Are you in? This is the question that the resurrection asks of us this year. I want to take a moment before we conclude our service in song uh, to lead you in prayer. Would you please join me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your death and resurrection, you have done so much more than forgive our sins and grant to us a life eternal. We are so grateful for forgiveness. We are so grateful for that eternal life. But we are also aware of the invitation that you have extended to us to join you as you enact the will of the Father. And I pray for all of us here today, those who are participating around the world. I pray that those on a journey of faith would find you, that they would come to a place of belief and faith. And I pray for those who have already placed their faith in you, that they would be ever more committed to your purposes, your plans, and your cause. And we ask this in your name. Amen.